Good morning. It's a joy to be back with you. Last time we came here was already two years ago, and um, I'm very excited to delve into God's Word together in Luke 7, 1 to 10. Usually at Bethlehem, someone else reads the passage beforehand, and I kind of assumed that, so why don't we read the passage uh, first together, and then we'll go into sermon proper. So Luke 7, 1 to 10, please take your Bibles, uh, whether it be physically or uh, electronically. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us quickly before delving in. Father, we come to you one more time, specifically and succinctly asking for you to come and bless your word by your Holy Spirit so that being in Christ, we would see you. We would treasure you more after having seen you in your word. Oh, Lord, would you do that? Would you enlighten our minds? Would you refresh our hearts? Would you straighten our wills to attend to your word, be touched by your word, and then live according to your word? Due to your word right now, we pray in your name and for your glory and our joy. Amen. So in Luke 7, verse 1, we read, and you have read it, we have read it together, after Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. By this verse, Luke is informing us that he's transitioning from teachings, sayings, to stories, narratives. Now, Jesus does more than speaking. He enters. He does an action, a verbal action. And indeed, just before our passage, in Luke 6, 20-49, you don't need to look, but if you want, you can. Luke 6, 20 to 49, that's what's before our, our passage. Christ was very busy teaching. This group of teachings is classically called the Sermon on the Plain. And it contains, among others, the Beatitudes, words about hypocritical judgment, you know, the dust and the beam, and words about building wisely or building foolishly. Very famous stories, teachings. So by now, the reader of Luke's gospel is really excited to 
switch back to stories. We've heard a lot of teachings. Now we're back to stories. Jesus enters. We love stories. We all do. And if you don't think of, uh, that you love stories or you like reading or hearing stories, movies have stories too. <laughs> so we all love stories. It's an undeniable fact of human existence. We love stories because in them, we get to see Jesus entering. We get to see Jesus going, praising, rebuking, being sad or amazed, like in our passage today. There's a sublime difference, a sublime difference between a story in the beginning, God created, and that's exciting, and that gets our attention, and a teaching, bear with me, God's triune creational act is the cosmologically foundational event of the drama of doctrine. It means God created, <laughs> believe it or not. It's, it is saying the exact same thing as Genesis 1.1. Um, with more bells and whistles, but it's the same thing. Please don't misunderstand me here. We can and we ought to be taught formally. That's a very important thing. That's what we're going to do in Cameroon. Um, but most of us naturally enjoy stories. We just do. And that's why most of the Bible is a story or a bunch of stories. We love stories because there's a dynamism in stories. And in fact, we see our own lives as stories most of the time, and even everything else as stories, stories of nations, stories of peoples. It is no wonder that we see things that way, since the most essential fact about reality is that it is the story whose author is God. Indeed, most stories are composed of five essential steps that make it a story, it's a, a good story, hear me, hear me well here. Um, and the story of reality, the story of God, reflects that, those five steps. The first step, you all know it, it's called the initial situation in narratology, the, the, the study of stories. Yes, there is a branch of academia that studies stories. Um, and that's once upon a time, right? The, who, where are we? Who are the main characters? And the such. Of course, in the Bible, that's creation. That's the initial situation. The second step and it can't be a story without that step, is the problem, the tension. If a story has no tension and problem, it's not a story. You lose interest really fast. And of course, in the Bible, that's the fall. That's when things went wrong. Third is a transformative action. It's something that is done or something that is learned. Uh, it's an action or knowledge that will resolve the problem eventually. That's a transformative action. And of course, in the Bible, that's God's promise first, of the coming of the serpent crusher in Genesis 3.16, through his elected people, Israel, and in Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's the transformative action. And fourth, you have the falling action. The problem has been and or is being resolved. And for us, that's the era of Christ's church, right? And fifth, you have the final situation, the new state of affairs, and they lived happily ever after. Every good, every, every good story ends like that way, right? Uh, you don't want a tragedy, a, a, bad, a bad ending. Um, and for us, of course, it's Christ's glorious second coming and the new heaven and the new earth that we can hope to. So you see, we live in a story. We're in the, as, you, as I've said, the following action, which is pretty exciting, <laughs> being the following action. Looking at the final situation and joining it 
uh, for some of us quicker, for some of us slower. But um, we don't know. Christ may come back tomorrow. So we may, we may join the final situation pretty quick. Um, so all good stories ever told emulate that one foundational structure. Every story is told that way with some twists, of course. And today we get to read and meditate on the littler story in the big story, Luke 7, 1 to 10. While stories are dynamic and lively, they, like formal teachings, do teach us something somewhat informally. But there's a message to every story. Uh, the Luke, the gospel writer, is not simply uh, making an objective account of what happened. He is telling it in a certain way to teach a certain thing about what happened. So before going verse by verse through our passage together, I want to frame our time by stating what I think Luke wants us to learn in this passage. It's very helpful to coming uh, to it with that knowledge already. He wants to teach us about faith and about true faith, saving faith. Here's my way of putting the passage's main point. Listen carefully. Saving faith does not put forward its righteousness, rather, while affirming its worthlessness, it puts its trust in Christ's power. So I repeat, saving faith does not put forward its righteousness. Rather, while affirming its worthlessness, it puts its trust in Christ's power. As we'll see, Luke contrasts that saving faith with blind faith. That's a contrast that he does in the passage to better teach his main point about saving faith by contrast. So let me summarize the contrast we will see in this passage. Saving faith for Luke is, is something that despairs, someone that despairs of sight itself and reaches clumsily outward for the son of righteousness that Jesus is and though blind, sees. Whereas blind faith claims perfect sight, reaches proudly inward for one's inner light and thus is blind. We'll see that contrast all across the passage. Now keep your Bibles open, please, or open them if you have not yet, so that you can follow verse by verse the text with me. Here's a structure you should see in the passage. So first, verses 1 and 2, we see our transition that we've already talked about in verse 1, and then the initial situation and the problem appear. I've called verses 1 and 2, Jesus is returned to Capernaum and the centurion's sick servant. Second, verses 3 to 8, that's our transformative action. I've called this unit, the centurion's requests, two of them, for Jesus' healing. Indeed, he makes two requests, one through Jewish people and one through his friends. Third, verses 9 and 10, that is the falling action and the final situation. We see Jesus' praise of the centurion's faith and the healing of the servant. Let's delve head on in verses 1 and 2. So first, Jesus returned to Capernaum and the centurion's sick servant, verses 1 and 2. As we've already seen in verse 1, Luke makes us transition from teachings to narratives. The first action that we see Jesus doing is that he enters Capernaum. That's our initial situation, very simple and plain. He's just back in Capernaum. And I say back because Jesus had already been there in Luke's gospel. Indeed, that's where he famously taught with, I quote, a most astonishing authority, and cast out a demon from someone amazing everyone. And we see that in Luke 4, 31 to 35, 
which happens before our passage. So Capernaum knows about Jesus. Moreover, in Luke 4.23 and Luke 10.13-15, we also learn that Christ has done many other, I quote, mighty works, which are probably not related, well, we know they're not related by Luke or the other Gospels. He has done other things. Luke mentions that. I'm not going to report them there because of space and uh, it's Luke's purposes in writing. So Christ comes back to Capernaum. Capernaum knows Christ. And we don't know, Luke does not tell us why Christ comes back to Capernaum. It's a very mysterious thing. There are no reasons really that we see. As a matter of fact, from there on, Christ will be surprisingly passive story-wise in our narrative. So understand me well. What I mean is that the story will rather focus on another person, namely a centurion. Right? So if, there, if you imagine a camera, the story is exactly like movies. The camera is shifting and really centering on the centurion. That's where the story is spending its time. Luke is spending his time. And we encounter him, the centurion, in verse 2. With him, we also encounter a sick servant, of course. And the sickness of the servant is the problem, the tension of our story. Read verse 2 with me. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him, highly honored by him. It is perhaps good to remember what a centurion was. If you know, uh, that's good. I'll just make a little quick reminder because some of you may not know. A Roman centurion was a commander in the Roman army of around 100 men. They were not at the top of the hierarchy. You know, Rome was a pretty militaristic state, the best military back in their days. They were not at the top of the hierarchy, but they were high enough that they earned a significant salary. And if you stayed alive as a centurion, you could, and you did, most of the time, uh, end up with a very good retirement plan. <laughs> Believe it or not, they had retirement plans, the centurions, because it was a militaristic state, and you, you want to keep your military going and happy. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a centurion who is essentially retired, probably, uh, and has a significant amount of money since he financed their synagogue. That, that's a very big thing. He built an entire building with his private pocket money. So they also tended to be rougher people, less educated people, but reliable, straightforward men. A centurion is a guy who he's there with his troops. He's not making plans. So straightforward man. Imagine a man like a U.S. Army sergeant with a bus cut and everything, right? That's the type of man we have there. Straightforward, reliable, good man in the army. Needless to say, this entrance presence in Capernaum is due to Rome's colonization um, and occupation of Galilee, right? That's why he's there. And so we learn that he has a servant who is sick. Sick to the point of death is what Luke wants to make clear to us. Luke adds this likely to make sure that we understand as readers that there's no hope for this servant. If there are no miraculous interventions, this servant will die. That's why he's sick to the point of death. Nothing can be done in an earthly way anymore for this servant. All hope, earthly hope is lost. Finally, we read that the centurion highly valued him. While Roman slavery was on the whole, and you may not know that, better than other types of slavery throughout uh, the history of mankind, this is still a shocking fact to read, that he was such a good master that valued his servant that way. 
Some Roman slave owners, and with ample evidence of that, could and did love their slaves, did freedom even. That was very common in the Roman Empire to see slaves eventually freed. Uh, people don't know that as well. Um, you, you have lots of evidences of slaves being freed, lots of evidences of slaves being great cooks or um, great teachers and, and things like that, being part of the family really. It's very different from antebellum American slavery, incredibly different. But still on the whole, that reading that a centurion would see this slave as honored, precious, valued, without any mention of a practical reason why is odd. This centurion is a little different from his culture. As we'll see in the following verses, the centurion goes very much out of his way for the sake of his slave, a slave. He seems to simply love him beyond what would be expected of even a virtuous Roman owner. With the end of verse 2, our story's foundations are set up. On the one hand, with Christ, who is coming back to Capernaum, and on the other hand, with a centurion and his sick servant, his sick slave. And we know as readers who Christ is already, as we read the Gospels, and we know who he is, we know what he's capable of, and we're almost left to anxiously wait for this encounter because we know what Christ could do for this sick servant. And thus we transition to the second part of our story, the main part, verses 3 to 8. The centurion's requests for Jesus' healing. Two requests. This is the core of our passage. This is where Luke spends the most time. We read in verse 3 that he heard, the centurion heard, about Jesus' return. As we have seen, Capernaum knew Christ already. It is likely that the centurion had seen himself, imagine that, the previously demon-possessed man, freed by Christ, at Galilee's Walmart while grocery shopping. It's true. They live in the same town. So for the centurion, really, he knows what Christ is capable of. This guy, I knew him. He was crazy before. <laughs> He's in his right mind now. So the centurion knows at least about that. If he was not listening to the teachings when Christ was there last time, he at least saw, he sees a man that is now well. In any case, the centurion, we're not told how, why. We just know he probably heard some, some of Christ's teachings. Likely, most likely saw the freed demon-possessed man. In any case, the centurion puts his trust in Christ's power and decides to request of Christ that he heals his sick servant. Him, a non-Jew, contacts Christ, a Jew. The centurion's request is our transformative action in a narrative, the action done to resolve the problem. The centurion sees Christ as the solution to his problem and reaches to him. Now, the way in which the centurion will address his request is paramount for Luke. It's very important, central. He does not go to Jesus himself like Jairus did. He could have just ran out the door and go see Jesus himself. He rather makes his request through two means. First, through some Jewish contacts he had, verses 3 to 6. And second, through his friends, verses 6 to 8. For whatever reason, we'll see why later, he does not want to go to Jesus in person. At this point of the narrative, we can think that it might be because he's a powerful man who's just too busy or that he's concerned about Jewish purity laws. We just don't know at this point. We'll see later 
why that is the case. The first means by which he chose to address this request of Jesus is to send some Jewish contacts he had. Let's look at verses 3 to 6 together. The centurion first thinks it best to ask Jewish people he knew that they be his mediators with Jesus. They would know how to approach Jesus, they're both Jews. Right? That's probably what he's thinking. He's going to send Jewish leaders to this Jewish man, Jesus. At this point, it is worth mentioning that these Jewish elders, that's what they're calling the text, were probably socially prominent Jews, social leaders, and not the heads of the synagogue. The heads of synagogue would not be called like that. So here it's really interesting. He probably knows those people because he himself part of the elite in Capernaum, right? The wording of the request the centurion shares with them is important. Let's read together. The centurion sent to Jesus elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So asking him to come and heal his servant. This could look odd, and this should look odd as we've read the entire passage, when we know the second request the Roman leader will later address to Jesus. Why is he asking Jesus to come now when one, he believes that one word from him suffices, later he says that, and two, he doesn't think himself worthy of seeing Jesus anywhere, not in his home, not outside, as we will see in the second request. That's a, that's a tension in the passage there. The way I reconcile the centurion's first request and the second is that I see in the first request a desperate, help, come quick. That's what the centurion is doing. Help, come quick. Imagine the scene with me. The centurion's neighbor, let's call him David, arrives at his home's front porch, exhausted from running and announcing to him, Titus, centurion, Titus, come quickly. Jesus is here. He will know what to do. He's your only hope for, the sick, for your sick servant. And Titus, the centurion, looks at David, then as beloved bleeding and bent servant that he loves so much, and he immediately runs to the Jews. Not to Jesus, but immediately runs to Jewish contacts he had. He then shouts at them, could you go get Jesus, please, before he leaves Capernaum? Ask him to come and heal my servant. Another way to see this is that if your baby is bleeding out, your reason is not working right. <laughs> you will have more of a knee-jerk reaction. Please come and help. You won't think. You'll just, you will just say something. You'll just ask for help. You'll plead for help. That's how I reconcile the first request as the second request. Verse 4, the Jews accept and come to Jesus. They accept the centurion's request to go to Jesus, and they go. The way they transmit the centurion's request will betray a faith which is different from the centurion's faith, as we'll learn later. We will discover the Roman leader's faith in verses 6 to 8, of course. Remember, that's a contrast Luke wants us to note, a contrast between saving faith and blind faith. To give the Jews some credit, though, they pleaded with Jesus earnestly on behalf of a centurion, a non-Jew. They are eager, urgent in their tone, come, please, now. However, the foundation of the Jews' request, what they put forward to Jesus is the centurion's righteousness. That's what they put forward. Look at verse 4. He is worthy to have you come do this for, to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he's the one who built us our synagogue. 
In other words, the Jews are saying, you don't have a choice, Jesus. He's worthy. The Jewish people owe him. We owe him. And therefore, you owe him too. The works he did justify that you'd help him. This kind of language betrays a language of honor and obligation, an earthly language of honors and obligations. He did that for us. He deserves that you do that for him. He's worthy of your service. There's no economy of grace here. The Jews transmit the centurion's request to Jesus with their understanding of faith, a faith which puts forward its righteousness, a faith which reaches inward, a faith which considers itself justified by the works it does, by the works of the law. Beloved, all who rely on the works of the law, on doing this, not doing that, doing this, not doing that, are under a curse. Galatians 3.10. And they walk in darkness because the light of saving faith is not in them. John 11.10. These Jews are blind guides. Matthew 15.14. They rely on an ultimately blind faith. These Jewish elders end up being a deceitful means for the centurion. They did not make his request in the way he would have wanted, as we will see together. And yet we read in verse 6 that Jesus went with them. Jesus accepts their request and goes with them. Christ, according to his divine nature, knew that the centurion's request and faith had not been presented adequately. And so he comes anyway. The story now looks like that should be it. Indeed, the centurion made his request through the Jews. They told Jesus. He accepted to come. As a reader, what you should be expecting as a reader, a watcher of movies, of stories, what you should be expecting is Jesus coming, healing the servant, end of the story. That should be how the story goes in terms of a classical five steps approach. However, the story takes an unexpected turn. The best stories do that. They play with the five steps, right? Uh, that, that's the best stories. There's a second transformative action, a second request that is made. Verse 6, look at verse 6 with me. When Jesus was not far from the house, so it's about to be resolved, the centurion sent friends. He sent friends. Like I said, I believe that the centurion wasn't pleased with the way that the Jews made the first request. The ways he, he made the first request. Ask him to come, please. He didn't think enough. It was a knee-jerk reaction. After some time of reflection, he probably is regretting making his request in that way. And as the passage says, he just sees Jesus. He was not far from the house. So he's just, Jesus is just two blocks away. I really, I'm really not comfortable with the way I asked him to come like that. That was not the way I should address Jesus. He does not want Jesus to have a wrong impression of him or a wrong impression of his request. And therefore, there's no time to get anyone, but his closest friends, that's why they say his friends, people that were in the room with him, and it just, he just sends his friends, and they just go to Jesus. They are the second means through which he makes his request to Jesus. And they won't be a deceitful means since this time, this time, the centurion gives them probably a very specific message to memorize. It's a very long message that they are saying, and the centurion seems to be speaking through them. And that is where Luke spends the most time in our narrative. It's very important in narratives and stories to see where the author spends the most time. 
That's usually where they want you to look carefully. He spends the most time on the centurion's speech, on the centurion's second request. And so that's the Bible telling us, look, that's where the meat is. That's where I want you to be careful and listen. Let's look at it together. Verses 6 and 7. Here, take note that I'm using the NIV for verse 7. I explain why. Read with me. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Verse 7, that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Here in verses 6 and 7, you have actually both times words in Greek that mean worthy. The ESV says, I did not presume. Behind, I did not presume is I did not think myself worthy, essentially. So here we have Luke, the centurion, saying, and Luke reporting what the centurion has said, I am not worthy, verse 6. I'm not worthy, verse 7. Ten minutes ago, the Jews were saying to Jesus, trouble yourself. He's a big deal. He's worthy. We owe him. You should go now. The centurion's message is exactly the opposite. As if he heard what the Jews had said. We can't know that for sure, of course. We now know he's using mediators, especially a second time, to make his request to Jesus, not because he considers himself a big deal, but quite on the contrary, because he doesn't, he doesn't think he deserves to see Jesus or have Jesus at home. He's not afraid of Jewish ritual purity laws. The core motivation behind the sending of messengers is based on his understanding of who Jesus is and who he himself is in light of Jesus. And he judges himself to not be worthy of being anywhere near Christ's holy presence. As some of you know, well, you now know, uh, Pastor Daniel mentioned that Abigail and I have been blessed with our first son, Calvin, who is nine months old. And as a result, I've been discovering and enjoying, quite frankly, uh, American uh, children's literature. Obviously, did not grow up with that <laughs> in Belgium. Um, uh, well, the centurion's earnest repetition, I'm not worthy here. I'm not worthy there. I'm not worthy anywhere. Made me think of Dr. Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> so bear with me. It is as if Sam I Am came to the centurion and said, you're worthy. Meet Jesus. And then the centurion in the pavilion would respond, I could not, would not on a boat. I will not, will not with a goat. I will not see him in the rain. I will not see him on a train. Nine a dark, nine a tree, nine a car. You let me be. I am not worthy of being in his presence anywhere. He's repeating himself twice. He really wants Jesus to understand he does not think he is worthy. The centurion does not put forward its own righteousness. Look at the synagogue I built. He does not do that. He rather affirms his worthlessness. Unlike blind faith, which does sing, it sure can be that I should gain, as all the religions of the world, all of them but Christianity, it sure can be that I should gain. Saving faith, true faith, the Christian faith, rather sings with the centurion, and can it be that I should gain? 
saving faith, despairs of sight itself, reaches outward for the son of righteousness that is Jesus, and though blind, sees, is given sight. As admirable as the centurion's confession already is, the centurion does not stop there. Let's read verses 7 and 8 now. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Simply based on what he might have seen, and what he might have heard of Jesus' teachings and works in Capernaum, he puts that much trust in Christ's power. Say the word. That'll be enough for you. Then he makes a minor to major comparison. If I, a centurion, can give orders to soldiers and see them be accomplished, surely you can order disease to simply go away. The logic of this is amazing, you see, because it so casually presupposes an amazing faith in what Christ can do. Yeah, I order soldiers away, you can order diseases away, right? I've seen it, I believe it. That's an even greater faith in Jesus than the paralytic and his friends, who with, with their faith, and they had faith, they do want to come in contact with Jesus or Jairus. The centurion believes so much in Christ's power, just, just say the word, you don't need to come, don't bother yourself. I'm not even worthy of you coming anyway. Just say the word. Of course, you probably are asking yourself at this point, is he saved? And we can't know that. We can't know if he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But like John Calvin wrote, he at least believed that the power of God resided in a very special way in Christ. That's as far as we can go in terms of affirmation. It seems likely that he is saved. Whether his internet was saved or not, not putting forward one's own righteousness, rather affirming one's worthlessness and putting one's trust in Christ's power is how faith, saving faith, true faith, always looks like and will always look like. And it is a strikingly beautiful sight in comparison to the blind faith of the Jews and most religions around the world. All religions around the world. It's a strikingly beautiful sight comparison to the inward bent, the bleak, the blind faith of self-righteous people everywhere. Now let's see what Jesus himself thinks of the Roman leader's message. We now reach the third and last part of our story. Jesus praised the centurion's faith and the healing of the servant in verses 9 to 10. This is our falling action. The problem is about to be resolved in consequence of the transformative action. And the final situation, the servant is uh, not sick anymore, he's healed. Look at verse 9 with me. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He marveled at him. Jesus heard. Jesus heard in the same way that the centurion heard about Jesus. There's a mutual hearing here that's interesting that Luke is playing on. Centurion heard about Jesus. Now Jesus hears about the centurion. Jesus comes back in the story. Remember, Jesus was quite passive in the story. Jesus hears. He's coming back in our story, full front and center. It was a movie. Now the camera would just center on Jesus. Like, okay, that was centurion. Now let's go back to Jesus. Jesus heard, and he marvels. 
He marvels. Christ is simply amazed. This is one of the only two texts in the entire Bible in which Jesus is amazed. And the other text is Mark's, Mark 6.6. 6. And you know what he marvels at in Mark 6.6? 6? Unbelief. He's amazed at unbelief. So in other words, this passage is the only passage in the entire Bible in which Jesus is positively amazed at something or someone. If something should catch our attention, I don't know what else <laughs> it is. Jesus is amazed. The only time in which he is amazed. Like Calvin says it well, it was no small matter to declare in such lofty terms the power of God of which a few rays only were yet visible in Christ. Then Jesus comments on his amazement, thankfully for us, was still in verse 9. And turning to the crowd that followed him, and we learned as a crowd, we didn't know that, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus himself turns this event, this story, into a formal teaching moment. He's saying to the people with him, don't miss the lesson. What happened is very important. Not only is this faith amazing in and of itself, and Jesus' passage implies that, it's just amazing, point blank. But it's all the more marvelous that it came from outside Israel, the chosen people of God. The Roman man with his strange lips and his foreign tongue, Isaiah 28:11, worships the one true God with a faith that is amazing to Jesus himself. Luke, more than any other Gospels, will show throughout the rest of his one book, Luke Acts, you know it was one book, how much the centurion and all of us non-Jews, equally non-Jews, are blessed and so loved by God to be able, through saving faith, to become sons and daughters of the one true God. Beloved, on this point, don't let America, American culture, fool you. The main wonder of the new covenant is not the ethnic diversity of people present in it, like the American and Belgian and we're all different. That's not the point. The fact is that all of us, equally non-Jewish people, equally non-Jewish peoples, lost without hope in the world, would be with the centurion, grafted in Christ through saving faith. That's the main point. It was scandalous to the Jewish people back then. We forget that because there's not enough Jewish people. Honestly, I wish there were more Jewish people around every church so we would be reminded of that. It was so scandalous to the Jewish people and it's scandalous to the Jewish people today. As you may have heard, I, I've lived in Israel. Orthodox Jews see all of us, all of us, doesn't matter where we're from, as goim. That is non-Jews. Goim in Hebrew just means peoples, nations. But the term is almost always used negatively by Orthodox Jews as essentially um, crazy people, degenerate peoples. The word just meant peoples back in biblical times. But it, it, it's so used pejoratively that now it, is, it means it's always pejorative. Goim. And I've heard it so many times. Mishugaim and goim, like an Orthodox Jew that said that. Those, those non-Jewish people, they're insane, they're crazy, they're degenerates. That's what real Orthodox Jews think of everybody else. 
We're the chosen people of God. Everybody else is a degenerate mass of peoples. They don't see us as worthy of being considered the people of God. And yet, beloved, it is those of faith. It is us, like the one of the centurion, the same faith, who are the sons of Abraham, the true sons of Abraham, the patriarch. He's our ancestor in faith through Christ. That's Galatians. The whole book is about that. It is those who, are, who have the same faith as the centurion who are the one kingdom, the one race, the one nation, the one people, according to 1 Peter 2.9. Kingdom of God, race of God, people of God, nation of God. That's us. Us in Israel, of course, right? One, one new thing. The scripture foresaw that God would justify non-Jews like us by faith alone. The amazing fact of the new covenant, what Paul calls it, it its central mystery in Ephesians, is that we non-Jews are fellow heirs, fellow heirs with all the holy people of God that you're reading the Old Testament, what fellow heirs with them? There are people now. There are, it's our story. Members of the same body as those saints that we read uh, in the Old Testament. There are people through Christ and partakers, therefore, of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All the promises are ours in Jesus Christ. They're all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That is the main point, the wonder and the mystery of the new covenant. And don't let America muddy that or rebrand that for you. This precious new covenant reality of which we are the beneficiaries today was already being accomplished in our passage. If you do not put forward your righteousness, rather while gladly affirming your worthlessness, you put your trust in Christ's power, then rejoice. For you have been given by Christ, it's a gift so that no one may boast, a wonderful, saving faith. You announce you a degenerate. You have received a faith which amazes Jesus himself. Finally, go with me to verse 10. And with those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. When through saving faith we reach outward for Christ and Christ embraces us back in with tenderness, we can confess with the hymn, whether our sick servant is made well or not, that whatever my lot has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In Luke 7, 1 to 10, we have learned together that saving faith does not put forward its righteousness, rather while affirming its worthlessness, it puts its trust in Christ's power. That is the faith the centurion had. That is the faith which amazed Jesus himself. We've also contemplated a striking contrast between the saving faith of the centurion, which despairs of sight itself, reaches clumsily outward for the son of righteousness, and though blind, sees Christ. And the blind faith of the Jewish elders who claim perfect sight, reach proudly inward for their inner light, see dark, darkness, and dress up blind to the Son of God. Permit me now to end our time in God's Word by some apt words from Lewis Carroll, yes, the author of Alice in Wonderland, which captures so well the essence of Luke 7, 1 to, 1 to 10. I stumbled upon that, honestly, and I was amazed at God's providence 
in giving me those words as I was working on that sermon. In the letter to a friend, which he wrote two years before his death, Carroll says that some of the core truths Christ taught us is, I quote, just before he died, our own other worthlessness and is infinite worth. It is by faith in Christ alone and through no merit of ours that we are reconciled to God. And most assuredly, I can cordially say, I owe all to him who loved me and died on the cross of Calvary. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, and we praise you. We praise you, triune God, for the grace that you have given us in Christ, that you came, and you came to seek your bride, and you came to redeem your bride, and your bride, um, they should have seen that, but it was not clear to them, was not just from the Jewish people, but your bride is composed of every people on the face of the earth. Everybody is called. Your bride is multi-ethnic, one faith, one people from everywhere. Thank you, O oh Lord, that you would have grace towards us non-Jewish peoples. So we did not deserve it. We were not worthy of you. We were and we are without you worthless. And yet you gave us Christ saving faith. You gave us Christ the privilege of being able to call you, O oh most holy God, Father, Father, Father. And so we give you praise and we pray that you would drill these truths into our hearts so that we would live according to them and not according to the principles of this dark, lost age, but live according to your principles with a renewed mind, a transformed understanding, and not a conformed mind to our cultures. Help us, O oh Lord, and redeem us every day more to make us live for your glory alone. We pray, desperately seeking your help. Amen.